Hello, welcome to Time to Say Goodbye. It is the 13th of December, and, uh, you know, I think that we should start out with the obvious news. This is the first show that I'm going to be doing without Tammy, who was the co-host of this show for the past three and a half years. Um, you know, it's a sad occasion, but I also think, as I said before, and which I'll go into more in the email that goes out accompanying this episode, I do think that the show needs to continue because of the large community that it has created and also because you know we have an audience and because I think that there's still a need for this type of conversation and I think that while I can't really give you great I don't know what the type right word is here maybe data points or bullet points about what the show is going to look like exactly that that's actually somewhat in keeping with the spirit of the show which was always a conversational quick moving and in some ways DIY type of effort. I do have a guest today, and I think for the foreseeable future, this is gonna try try and think of this as kind of a uh, chaotic and unprofessional <laughs> version of In Our Time, which is the great BBC co- uh, podcast with Melvin Bragg, where he interviews people who he thinks have really interesting ideas or outlooks on the world or are historians of an interesting period of time that many people don't know about. That's going to be the spirit. I don't know what the right word is. Maybe like a degenerate Asian in our time or something like that. But uh, we're going to continue either way. Again, if you would like to support the show, it is $5 a month at goodbye.substack.com. Or you can do the same at patreon.com slash TTSG. If you want to get in touch with us, it's time to say goodbye pod at gmail.com. Our guest today is Tyler Austin Harper. I'm going to do the full introduction here in a second when I bring him on, but this is somebody I've, whose work I've really watched over the years and who I've, who I've read, who I've followed on Twitter, who I think has a lot of really interesting perspectives on things, and I'm really excited to bring him on and have a conversation uh, that is coming up right now. Welcome to the show, Tyler Austin Harper. Tyler is a literary scholar and an assistant professor of environmental studies at Bates College. His research focuses on the history of Western thinking about human extinction. He also writes on culture, race, and politics for The Atlantic and other outlets. I've read almost everything you've written, I think, in those public forums, Tyler. And I'm very excited to have you on the show. I've always, I've sort of watched your writing from afar and then not really from afar for a while and felt like we were fellow travelers in some sort of way. Yeah, no, absolutely. It's really great to be here. Um, Part of the reason why is because you teach at Bates and I went to Bowdoin College, these two, for people who don't know, are, I don't, how far is it from Lewiston to Brunswick, man? Like 40 minutes? Like 35 minutes. Yeah, it's real close. Yeah, so um, it's like our sister school, the third school is Colby, and uh, I'm always curious to talk to people because Maine was such like a bizarre experience for me. What's it been like for you being up there? Yeah, you know, I grew up in like a pretty rural place that's not necessarily uh, totally dissimilar. Um, I hunted fish and stuff. So like that's all been uh, pretty culturally familiar. I mean, Maine is really different. You know, um, 
as you probably know, you're not like a Mainer until you've been here for several generations. So like, you know, when I used to live in Lewiston by the school, everyone's family had known everyone else for like a million years, yeah. you know? Um, so that kind of sort of insular politics stuff is weird. Um, but yeah, no, Maine is, Maine is great. It's a beautiful state. Um, and yeah, no, it's, it's been uh, super solid. I, I uh, was in um, NYC before for grad school uh, and, you know, as I often joke, the longer you're in New York, particularly in your 20s, like at a certain point, the carrot gets smaller and the stick gets bigger. And I was uh, I was about ready to leave the city whenever uh, I moved up here. So, yeah, yeah amen to that. I mean, I don't I don't think I'll ever live in New York again. I remember uh, we were talking a little bit before the show started. But um, when I got to Maine, I was, you know, I'm from North Carolina, but and I had never really been around these. It wasn't like I was totally unfamiliar with with, you know, uh, kind of private schooly kids but there is this thing that happened where like we all got super into the outdoors and i think it was because of our proximity to the ll bean outlet in freeport which <laughs> yeah yeah, yeah. <laughs> it totally. was like literally the only thing to do on weekends a lot of times was like go down there because i think it was open 24 hours a day but it is dude it's open tw- it still is it's crazy oh yeah yeah okay okay so th- we would go there at like one in the morning or something like that and um that's great there is this like it was almost like a Led Zeppelin phase that I got into along with my roommates who were all like people from places like, Oh, I don't know. Um, uh, Newton, Massachusetts or, you know, Lexington, Massachusetts yep. and stuff like that. And we would, we yeah, would Wellesley, Massachusetts. Yeah. They're all Boston suburban kids. And we would, um, we got into hunting for a while. And so we all bought shotguns at the L <laughs> outlet and took That's a hunting awesome. safety course. Oh, man, that thing That's was great. wild. It was like the thickest main accents you've ever heard in your life. I remember the instructor oh, yeah. had this like canned joke that I could tell he told every time, which was like he was basically like, now, drinking and hunting. Uh, don't do it. We all know drinking and driving. That's a lot of fun, you know, but drinking and hunting. <laughs> no. I was yeah, introduced that's, that's to a very main joke. Coffee brandy, right? Which is like a Yeah, yeah, oh, Alan's coffee brandy. What do they call it? Uh <laughs> Lilies of the Tundra, like in the spring whenever all the snow melts and there's Alan's coffee brandy everywhere, they call all the empties that like appear out of the snow in Portland Lilies of the Tundra. Oh, right. yeah. <laughs> yeah. That's great. Yeah, coffee brandy a very specifically main drink. I don't know. I still have a lot of affection for main. That's made in Boston, but it's like a main thing. Yeah. I think yeah. they just make it for us. Yeah. Yeah, right. I don't think I've ever heard of coffee brandy anywhere except like kind of coastal Maine or central Maine. Um, yeah. I'm not sure if they do it in southern Maine, but um, it also sounds way fancier than it is, you know? Oh, yeah. I mean, you can buy a handle of that stuff for eight bucks. <laughs> it's like yeah. the cheapest liquor that you can possibly buy. Um, I also wanted to ask you something now. You know, I think we we're talking about a range of topics, but I wanted to ask you about this, uh, what you're studying, which is, uh, you know, like thinking about human extinction, like what does that mean in terms Mm -hmm. of like, what's it mean to be a literary scholar uh, in the environmental studies department thinking about this question? Yeah, so I'm interested in the way that our ideas about human extinction have changed over time. Um, You know, people often think that we've been thinking about the end of the world for millennia, and in a certain sense, that's really true. Um, But the idea of human extinction as a sort of secular event 
um, not caused by God, right? That's caused by sort of naturalistic forces, whether, you know, stuff out of nature or, or humankind's uh, own doing. It's a comparatively new idea. Um, we didn't actually discover species extinction until the end of the 18th century, which often surprises people. We had found fossils for well over a thousand years, um, but a lot of them were uh, fossils of fish and they were they tended to be on mountaintops. Um, and there was no way to explain how fish had got up on mountaintops because they had no theory of geological change, right? right? So they didn't get that, like, mountains and seas could move. Um, so for hundreds and hundreds of years, until about the 18th century, people thought they were strangely shaped rocks, which, you know, sounds absurd. But again, if the theory is strangely shaped rocks or fish on mountaintops, it's, you know, the rocks, <laughs> the strange rocks one. Um, but at the end of the 18th century, uh, you know, it was proven that some species had gone extinct and that kicked off really the past two centuries of sort of fear mongering about uh, the end of humanity. Um, so what my work really does is chase, uh, trace how our ideas about human extinction have changed in response to new scientific developments, right? So changes in geology, uh, the rise of Darwinism and evolution, um, the sort of revelation of thermodynamics, uh, then later technological developments like nuclear war, climate change, and so on. So like how in do you do that from a literary perspective like you're looking at Yeah, at so before 1945, right? We're really used to the idea that, you know, risks to the human species are now like a public policy question, a sort of scientific question. Um but before 1945, it was only really fringe scientists, but also um novelists, poets, um literary types who were doing much thinking about the end of the world because it was largely seen as a kind of non-serious speculative problem. Um so really before we dropped the bomb, um, most of the people thinking about human extinction, or at least quite a lot of them, um, were were, liter were novelists um, and, and literary types. Um, so I work between literature, the history of science, um, sort of tracing how um, both novels and, and sort of contemporaneous science interacted in the 19th and early 20th century. Well, that's interesting. So, like, when is the first real articulation of, of the end of the world then in terms of like an apocalypse, a man-made apocalypse, right? Because obviously there's been religious apocalyptic thinking for a while, but in terms of like the first question of, I saw you tweeted about this recently. I wanted to save it for the end of the yeah. show, but right, we might as well just talk about it now, which is like, you know, you talked yeah. about how science fiction can be dangerous, right? That it, it, mm -hmm. that yeah, it yeah. inspires the imagination of people who are, I'm paraphrasing, but it inspires the imagination of people who see a scenario laid out in science fiction and they try and actualize it in a lot of ways. And I, I think that this is generally true, right? Like at least it's the way that yeah, we yeah. think about it. I mean, uh, one obvious example is like 1984 and the surveillance state and the fact that we can only really refer to the surveillance state through this one book, right? That this one novel that came out however many years ago has always been interesting to me because it seems like people are actually trying to create the vision that they saw in there. And then you wonder yeah. if that vision had not been articulated, like how would we think about all these surveillance issues, right? And it's like something that's really had a grip on the world for so long in terms of that one vision of it. Um, and now we obviously have all this new stuff that is coming out and that like, I don't think that there's ever been a time in which both the news media and critics and thinkers have been more interested in the idea of extinction than now, whether through climate or through now, you know, the new trendy yeah. AI stuff, like it's really occupied yep. a huge part of our thinking. So I don't know when, when, what was the, we can talk about all that soon, but like, what was the, what was the first articulation of this, do you think? Yeah, you know, I mean, I think that's uh, sort of a complicated question to answer because, you know, people have been 
fretting about human extinction in sort of multiple languages. I mean, in English, um, you know, you start to see the idea of man-made extinction in particular emerging in the early 20th century. Um, j just to give you an example uh, of, of what we were saying, sort of science fiction preceding science and technology, um, Wells didn't predict human extinction directly in this text, but in 1914, H.G. Wells, the sort of great sci-fi novelist who wrote The Time Machine, The War of the World. He wrote this uh, book called The World Set Free in 1914 um, that depicted atomic warfare and atom bombs. And the guy who discovered nuclear chain reactions in the early 1930s was explicitly influenced by that book. And he, he got interested in trying to, uh, you know, create an atom bomb because he had read Wells, right? Um, and, you know, one of the things I often point out in my academic work is there's this way in which... Um, I think we tend to assume that like science fiction is the handmaiden of science. And what I mean by that, right, is we think that like science fiction novelists read some cool science shit that's going on and they're inspired and they imagine stuff. Um, and there's ways in which that's true, but there's ways in which it's often also the inverse, right? Um, and, you know, way before anyone was actually trying to make an atom bomb, people like H.G. Wells were, were imagining it, you know? And it wasn't just science fiction novelists. I mean, uh, Winston Churchill in 1924 writes this sort of whacked out essay called Shall We All Commit Suicide? Um, and, you know, we tend to think that fear about sort of um, warfare ending the world emerges after we invent nuclear technology. But people are already worrying about this in the 1920s. And Winston writes this essay, Churchill writes this essay, um, where, you know, he argues that military technology after World War I is advancing so rapidly that it might soon be very possible to that we exterminate ourselves. And he um, imagines, he says uh, something, I'm paraphrasing, but he says, might it not soon be possible um, that explosives the size of an orange could lay waste to whole townships, you know? And so he's already imagining this sort of exponential increase in um, the powers of war that, that might wipe us out. Um, so, you know, a lot of this thinking really does precede the scientific and, and technological developments. Um, you know, saying they, I mean, there are some cases like the, you know, physicist I mentioned in nuclear chain reaction where people are coming out and saying, yeah, I was influenced by this specific thing. Um, but it's also just in the atmosphere. Um, you know, it, it, there was a lot of, um, traveling back and forth between science and literary circles, particularly in the 1920s. So, you know, the geneticist J.B.S. Haldane, who was one of the most important sort of biologists, geneticists, uh, and statisticians in the early 20th century. Um, also, you know, he wrote a sci-fi novel that was, I think, published post posthumously. Um, he wrote weird sci-fi short stories that were like blending the actual science work he was doing with science fiction. <laughs> um, science used to be a lot weirder, which is a thing I think I don't think people get right. Um, but yeah, this this relationship between science and science fiction um, it's really complicated, and you know, and people really hated the tweet. I suggested that, you know, sci-fi has been negative for the world. And, you know, I think there are certain kinds of science fiction people love to point to. Like everyone was like, have you read Octavia Butler? And it's like, yeah, I've read Octavia Butler, but fucking Elon Musk is not reading Octavia Butler <laughs> or, or Ursula K. Le Guin's sort yeah, of, yeah, you know, yeah, Mars yeah. socialism fantasies, right? right so right. it is this question that the like sci-fi that gets a grip in the mind of people with power um, is not always the sci-fi that uh, we'd want to. Um, and often they're just, they read it very poorly. I mean, my favorite example of this is, you know, Soylent, that meal replacement drink. Oh yeah, um, yeah. Obviously the term comes from Soylent Green, which is about cannibalism, right? right? Uh, and yet, you know, they, they uh, seem to really have woefully misinterpreted the whole like bit of that movie, right? So <laughs> yeah, I, I really do think science fiction does have this stranglehold on our imagination. I think it um, 
particularly with Silicon Valley, which you mentioned, it becomes really difficult to disentangle what is like legitimate, scientifically grounded fear about AI, for example, from what is um, people who are fueled on ketamine and oversteeped on like bad science fiction and, and you know, worrying about uh, iRobot and Terminator and like pulling that apart, like what is the influence of science fiction and what is the influence of, of science in Silicon Valley and our, our current AI panic is really tricky. But it, I mean, it's really in, important too. Yeah, yeah, it's super. I, I've, I've found that to be the most interesting part about the whole AI thing, which is, you know, I have this buddy who came on the show a couple of times, Ben Racked, who uh, is a AI machine learning professor at okay. Cal. And, um, you know, he was basically like, all of this is just Skynet. You know, it's like people worrying about two movies and that, you know, for our yep. generation, I don't know what how to define a generation, but it seems like this iteration of worrying about this stuff is really inspired by two movies, right? There's these two movies, Terminator and The Matrix, have had such a huge yeah. influence on an entire totally. generation of, of young tech people. And I don't actually think that it's like a... I'm not saying that in a sneering way. I just find it really interesting yeah. that they have had this amazing thing. And I think one of the most interesting parts about the whole like uh, SBF scandal that I found was, you know, like realizing that like Caroline Ellison and some of these other people, they really read a lot of books, you know, they read much yeah. more books than the average person. Now you can argue what their interpretation of these books are, whatever. I don't really care. But what I found most interesting was that they were grounding these ideas they had about effective altruism, like the future of the world, the sort of role of AI w would have in yeah. it. And then, this idea of like, you know, which is kind of like a bastardized version of an Ayn Rand type of objectivism case that they were making about yeah. the world were all derived from these books that they were reading. Right. Like it wasn't like everybody just read Slate Star Codex and decided that whatever Scott Alexander said was right, even though that was part of it. But like yeah, this yeah, community yeah. in particular was actually quite literary in a lot of ways in that like they had this sort of melange of different ideas from science fiction and from different types of books that they had read that they all were synthesizing into this into this worldview and it is whether you like it or not it is the dominant worldview in silicon valley right now like it is there's no real question about that now there's plenty of people who work in silicon valley who are just like liberals who are just trying to make a lot of money it's a job that's probably the majority of it but the people who are pushing the ideology of silicon valley like it's definitely like a literary project in a lot of ways you know Dude, and you know, I mean, that's totally right. I mean, OpenAI just tanked like 80 or $90 million of market cap, billion dollars, excuse me, because of a, a like a sci-fi fueled debate internal to the organization about like whether they had had a breakthrough, right? right. Where uh, one of their chatbots could do like literally shit you not like grade school math. And they saw it was doing like two plus two equals four. And they like, they were like, this is how it starts, right? And they like, I mean, like tried to oust uh, Sam Altman based on this, you know? And so these like sci-fi fueled fantasies really have like a huge stranglehold on like the tippy top. I think you're totally right about the sort of people in the lower strata. Um, but one thing that I think you're so spot on on in particular is that these people read. Um, and this is a point, you know, I'm like you, I'm on the sort of uh, lefty Marxist side of the spectrum. And, and whenever I say this to other academics or to like other folks on the left that like Elon Musk and these people fucking read and they're reading like they read novels, they read, you know, they like read stuff, they read philosophy. People are deeply resistant to that because they're like, 
deeply sort of emotionally attached to this like these people are like heartless math villains right right which is definitely like it's not wrong in a certain way and i'm not saying like you know these people are scholars of literature like have a uh sort of fine-grained interpretation of whatever it is that they're they're reading but they do read and i think um I mean, one of the points that I'm constantly trying to make is when we don't take them seriously um, and when we assume that their motives are just money um, rather than like a deep ideological commitment, we don't we're like ill equipped to understand what the fuck is happening. I mean, I made this point with Elon Musk uh, last year whenever he was um, meddling in Ukraine with his Starlink satellites in Crimea in particular. Um, and he was motivated by a fear that, you know, um, the war was going to cause human extinction via nuclear war, right? And he was actively trying to prevent nuclear war because he's obsessed with human extinction, right? And so, like, these ideologies really drive real-world decisions um, people in these companies and in the tech world are making. And the media, the the Times coverage of this in the last week has been awesome. Um, They've they've covered the sort of uh, extinction panics in Silicon Valley. They've covered the open AI stuff. They've talked about this debate between effective altruism and effective accelerationism, and it's been really important reporting. Um, But most of the media just treats these people like, you know, billionaire playboy dipshits. And in a certain way, that's true, but they're really ideologically committed to stuff. And I think if we don't, um, I don't want to say take them at their word, because I'm not implying we should trust them. But if we're not willing to at least entertain the idea that this isn't all just like a money-making scheme, but they really believe some of this stuff about digital minds and Skynet and shit, then, like, we really don't understand what's happening, you know? Right. There's sort of this odd battle going on right now in terms of who will have the control of human, ex- of the vision of human extinction, right? Um, on yeah, the left, yeah, yeah, it, sure. the vision is, uh, is definitely climate-related, right? Like, that is sort of the apocalyptic yep. vision that people have. And then on the and I don't even know if the right is the right word, but tech has offered up this AI vision that is based on effective altruism where it seems like the real targets are that the institutions that sort of regulate liberal life, whether these elite, inst- uh, elite academy or um, the Democratic Party, but that's that, that less so I think is a problem, right, to them. Mm-hmm. I think it's more the media is the big problem, um, that they're feeding us these lies about what is the actual risk to society. And it's interesting that Elon Musk is in the center of it because he in a lot of ways has done more to reduce carbon emissions than almost any human. Like you can argue that whatever yep. the particulars totally. of it, but yeah. like electric cars are a net good for carbon emissions, right? Like, it's hard to argue that. Um, And yet he's also now kind of on the fringes of this larger debate about what we should do about human extinction. I agree with you. I I don't see Elon Musk and see somebody who is after money at this point. You know, I just see somebody who has basically turned himself into the world's hero or world's villain and that he enjoys both sides of it. And, um... If it was about money, he wouldn't be so obsessed with this social media company that he bought, which generates no money, is just costing him a ton of cash and that he tinkers with all the time in ways that people think are like bad and evil, but in a way are purely ideological, obviously. Um, Purely. I think that in his mind, I'm not saying I I actually obviously strongly disagree with what he actually thinks about all this, but... um, 
But I don't think that, I don't know, it seems like one of those, when somebody says something to you, they should believe it. Like, when he's telling advertisers to fuck off and they can't block blackmail him with money, like, I just think that yeah. that's probably true, you know? Like, he's probably willing to Dude. blow up his entire fortune to make sure that Twitter is exactly what he thinks it is, which is this stupid <laughs> vision of free speech or whatever. Um, yeah, I totally agree. And he's just going to go with it. Um, yeah, I mean, I'm not. I I, I think for people sometimes take me to be defending Musk, and I'm I'm not at all. I I'm on the same. Uh, we're on the same page about him, but I do think like he's not money motivated in the way that people assume, um, and I do think he's. And even before he became, uh, not before he became famous, but before he became like the billionaire. I mean. Even in the early 2010s, he was prattling on about extinction, existential risk. We have to go to Mars to save the human species. Right, like, right. He's been crystal clear and unwavering about this for like 15 years. And um, at this point, I just I don't see the benefit of assuming that he's not ideologically motivated. And the other thing I always point out to leftists is, is you know, I think Musk the thing I will give him is that I think he is drawing attention to problems of existential risk and, and human extinction in a way that have been previously dismissed by the media because they seem like sci-fi and speculative, you know? Um, and my point is always, if you don't like that a billionaire is driving discourse and sort of mitigation strategies around human extinction, um, he's merely stepping into a vacuum that's been created by governments, right? Who have retreated from sort of the public good and funding these large scale research and technology projects the kind we used to, right? I mean, Musk is fueling space tourism and space travel shit precisely because Na NASA has retreated, right? right? So the whole reason a billionaire is in this place of uh, being this Bond villain slash superhero that's going to save the world is because neoliberal governments have retreated from their duty to like provide for the common good and to fuel these kinds of programs that worry about these problems. So if you don't like Musk worrying about it, then our government should be, you know? Yeah, that is true. I mean, NASA doesn't effectively doesn't exist anymore except as like a branding thing that teenagers wear you know i always see kids walking around <laughs> yeah. wearing nasa t-shirts they're like do you remember any of this yeah. <laughs> right it was basically like yeah. I, it was a big deal when i was six years old and then the challenger blew up you know and then it was obviously bad after that but i just uh i don't i don't think that it, it is interesting it's basically like nostalgia right it's like when Urban yeah. Outfitters would put out all those t-shirts, uh, ironic nostalgia t-shirts, and now that's basically what yeah, yeah, NASA yeah. has been reduced to. I can't think of a thing that NASA has done in the past 25 years that has been significant. And yeah, it's uh, the idea, I, I think like, it, 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 I guess what he has proven is that people still have a appetite for that type of ideation, right? Yeah. Like what, what happens totally. when the world is no longer habitable and what happens... Um, and what's interesting is that there's this cross wires thing where the people who are arguing that the world is soon going to be inhabitable because of climate change are also somewhat ideologically opposed to the guy who is promoting the vision of sp space exploration. And I wonder if there was like a, you know, kind of nicer billionaire <laughs> pushing this stuff if they would be more totally. if they would be more on board with it but i don't think so i mean i don't know the, the space exploration stuff seems quite crackpotty to me um but yeah yeah, yeah. Uh, i think that's I totally just, right you know i don't know i guess i worry about my own now that yeah you're you're a new father right yeah yeah right so within the context of our children's lives like you know it's kind of grim i mean it, you lived through a couple natural disasters and 
Um, yep. And not even large scale stuff, but here in Northern California, obviously we had the wildfires. Fires, um, yeah. And you have days where it really does feel apocalyptic and you do wonder what world will be left for the kids. And like that seems to be the emotional yeah, thing that a lot of this existential st- or extinction stuff is playing upon. And it is, it is interesting that yeah. um, both, both, I mean, I would say the climate side is way more powerful right now, right? Like the, this stuff mm-hmm. gets a lot of media attention, but I don't know how many people are really thinking about extinction via AI at this point, but you know, there is a lot of money and yeah. media attention to it. Right no, now. I mean, I totally agree with you about the climate stuff. And this is one of the other ways in which like science fiction does have a negative influence and matters like a lot of, um, I mean, to train chat GPT, like to train one model is not only billions and billions of dollars. It's, it's a truly unfathomable amount of water that it requires to keep servers and shit cool, you know? Um, and so AI, which people don't realize and chatbots are a massive energy drain on, on the planet and will only continue to be a more massive energy drain as they continue to scale up and scale up and scale up. Like Microsoft and a lot of these companies want to have like very small scale nuclear reactors to help power them to offset some of that energy shit. Um, but the gamble, and this is explicit, like a lot of people in Silicon Valley will talk about this. The gamble they're making is that the negative externalities of AI are going to be worth it because AI is going to solve climate change, right? So like we got to play chicken basically and keep scaling it up and scaling it up and like, you know, using more and more water and like taking more and more energy demands um, because AI is going to figure out like clean energy. It's just going to miraculously solve all our problems, right? And so it is like a game of chicken um, and and they're getting this from sci-fi, right? And, you know, sci-fi imaginings about either the singularity or sort of an AI post-scarcity utopia, right? Um, so uh, climate change and AI are interlocked in ways that people don't always, always appreciate. Um, ideologically interlocked, um, but also just like materially um, interlocked from a sort of ecosystem and resources standpoint. Um, and that's in part because, like I said, they've, they, they're making this bet that all our problems will be solved if, if, you know, as soon as we have super intelligence. Yeah, my buddy and um, we, we'll, this will be the last thing we talk about that we can move on. But like, the, uh, you know, I have this buddy, Michael Moynihan, who uh, does the Fifth Estate podcast. He worked with me at Vice. Oh, yeah. And he's like a he's like a great interviewer. And so he interviewed he posted on Instagram this interview he did with Sam Altman way back in the day when we worked together. Oh, cool. Sam Altman was wearing like an Under Armour. <laughs> and he That's clearly great. hated Michael, detail. which is one of Michael's great talents is that he like is so good at irritating a subject into saying what the subject actually thinks. It's like this amazing interview yeah, yeah, yeah. tactic. And, and my, to his credit, Michael was not being irritating in the way that I think Michael could sometimes be intentionally right sure. like he's just so good yeah, at yeah, yeah. pressing a button you know sometimes he would do it to me and i'd be like what the fuck and then i'd be like wait no you know? <laughs> um but um <laughs> you know what sam altman was basically doing was outlining this vision in which and i think grimes talked about it some too when she did her like ai stuff which is basically something i think that these guys think about in the same way that i think you know mormons think about thetans or that scientologists think about science the spaceship that comes down which is something they don't make so public right but is basically the driving ethos of everything which was that what they want is they want basically ai to do all the work for everybody so that we can move to a ubi system right and that under the ubi system that we would basically have a lot of leisure time and we wouldn't have to work, <laughs> work yeah, yeah, yeah. 
And then that was sort of the Grimes argument, which was that Marxists should embrace this, right? Because it is a vision of Marxism. I don't know. You are a Marxist. Like, what, what, do, you, what do you think about that? Yeah, I mean, I also think Marx had a baseline thought that like human labor has a certain kind of dignity that is robbed of us by like capital, you know, right. which just makes us work in these horrible jobs of drudgery. Right. And so, I mean, on, on my reading, uh, you know, Marx wasn't after a world in which no one worked, but rather a world in which people worked in a way that um, spoke to both their like human dignity, but also their sort of aspirations and desires. Right. And I think um, and there's this whole like related post scarcity thing called luxury communism, which is batshit fucking insane. And it's like, yeah, in, in luxury communism, we'll all drink champagne and drive, you know, what uh, Lexi or whatever. Right. Um, and <laughs> it's, yeah, I, I don't know. It's like really, uh, <laughs> it seems like a vision of Marxist California where nobody really works and everybody has like a, you know, a, a Tesla and drives yeah, exactly. And gets amazing produce. Uh, <laughs> yeah, exactly. Right. Really good tomatoes. Um, I don't know, dude. Yeah, I, I don't, that doesn't strike me. I mean, I think work has some like dignity and value, I guess. Um, and I just think like the problem is not that we labor, but the like horrible conditions and kinds of labor we're stuck doing. And I think AI is going to make all of that worse. And the fantasy that we're just going to like chill out and do bong rips and write poetry or whatever is not, uh, like, I don't think that's going to happen one, uh, and two, I don't know. I think it misses something fundamental. Like people get like dignity and satisfaction from doing things, you know? And yeah, I don't know. Yeah, but I, I think agree. you're right. Yeah. That is, we, we interviewed Mike Davis a long time ago, and Mike Davis was basically oh, cool. like, I'm not one of these communists who think people shouldn't work. I'm one of the communists who think people should work, you know, and that work yeah. is, work <laughs> is good. Yeah, Mike Davis rocks. And that was basically, yeah, that's my takeaway from it, too. I think about it quite a bit when I go surfing. And, you know, 15 years ago when you would surf around here, it was quite lonely. Not lonely, but, you know, you'd see <laughs> the same five dudes. And um, yeah. now it's like a whole bunch of tech people who have the same, you know, $300 Wavestorm surfboard that has correctly been identified as like the optimal board, you know, like for the money that you yeah. spend and the amount of fun you're going to yeah, have, yeah. which is true, you know, yeah. um, you catch a lot of waves and unlike me where I just am a vain idiot and will not admit to myself that I'm 43 years old now and also can't get, go surfing enough to stay in shape where you have these like expensive stupid boards that i can't even ride anymore you know like and then some <laughs> dude on a wave storm who sucks is like taking the wave and taking off in my face which is like motherfuck anyway in those time. moments i think you motherfuckers should have real jobs <laughs> you know? yeah, like yeah, what right? are you doing out yeah. here <laughs> i'm out here because work. i'm a writer surfing's big in maine man that's like a huge my colleagues keep trying to get me out. I have one colleague who's a poet who's like a really hardcore surfer. Like he does winter surfing oh, and yeah. shit and be out there in February yeah. with like an ice beard, you know? And yeah. yeah, but it's huge in Maine now. All my students surf like Really? Where do they go? Like they go to Popham Beach or something like that? Yeah, Popham, I think is big. Yeah. Um, I think there are some other beaches in the south. Uh, what's the one? Port, um, Portsmouth. Higgins is... Beach in Maine is right, big. Right, right. Uh, yeah, yeah, surfing. yeah. Oh, yeah. that's cool. I wish I had been at Bowdoin when the people were surfing. I had a buddy who did it, but he could never drag me out because I was, you know, I don't know. Yeah, it's a cool thing to do now, man. Yeah, they, all, they all surf. Yeah, that's, uh, I kind of miss it. I, I don't know. I do spend a lot of time with my college roommates, and we do, we do talk about it all quite a bit and for a while it was like all resentment that i had in my head because i hated the school but now i yep. just kind of 
I don't know. It is a beautiful place to be, especially in the summer. But unfortunately, that's not when we're there. I mean, it must be getting dark <laughs> at like 345 there right now. Dude, it gets dark so early. And I, when I'm on like Zoom calls with people in New York or whatever, they're like, where are you? <laughs> you know, it's like three yeah. o'clock. Are What's you happening? in London? Yeah, no. Oh, my yeah, God. Like, yeah. Where the fuck? <laughs> yeah. All right. So I brought you on. Look, we've, we've spent a half hour on that. I'm very happy about that. But, you know, we yeah, I wanted too. to talk to you a little bit about what's been happening in the Academy, because I know that it's something that you've talked about. And I think it's something that you write about. And so, yeah. The obvious news here, and maybe it'll change by Wednesday, but I don't think so, which is that uh, Liz McGill, who is the president of the University of Pennsylvania, resigned after she partook in this, oh, I don't know what to call it, even congressional hearing in which Elise Stefanik uh, was sort of doing like a debate trick on these three presidents of Harvard, MIT, and Penn. And one of the thoughts I had was like, Man, maybe debate is good. I generally say debate is bad, but sometimes I think maybe debate is good because any debater who did any amount of work would have figured that trick out immediately and not responded in the way that these college presidents did. Liz McGill uh, recorded an apology that looked like she was reading off of some sort of script that had been prepared for her, perhaps by like a crisis PR team or something like that, right? Oh, for sure. And uh, now all the focus has shifted over to Claudine and Gay, um, what would you mm-hmm. think about all of this? I think the thing I found really galling is that these are ostensibly people with lots of media training. Um, you know, college presidents are kind of like um, college football coaches in that like a huge part of their job is just like being salesmen and like recruiting young people, right? right? It's like not always like the coaching piece. A lot of it is, you, you know, you know, well, well, no, is just like recruiting and money and stuff. And I think um, college presidents are a lot like that, right? Where they're part of their job. The most important part is like, people skills and and PR. And that congressional hearing was just a catastrophe from a PR standpoint. And I guess as just, you know, a regular guy, what found, what I found so like just baffling about it was the question was not hard to answer in a way that straddled the line they wanted to straddle. They could have easily said, no one on our campus has called for genocide. I think any calls for genocide are grotesque. I would have to, you know, assess any speech at given speech act on campus with regard to our free speech policies. I can tell you what those policies are, but no one's calling for genocide. And I think such calls would be gross, right? That was an easy answer to give. Um, And they seem to just be unable to do it. And so there's like a part of me that is like, well, this is, um, you know, like they did a very bad job and PR is part of their job. And so like firing them for just like the shitty performance, I, I mean, I'm not pro-firing any of them, but, like, I understand it. Yeah. Um, but that's not what's driving their removal. It's, you know, that um, there is this huge push to make universities pay for what is perceived as the sort of anti-Israel slant of the universities. Um, and, you know, as part of, too, this sort of broader debates around free speech and violence and what constitutes violence and so on and so forth. Um I do think it is very, uh, I think it's unfair that Claudia Gay has gotten wrapped up into this. I mean, I I didn't think she knocked her testimony out of the park. I thought it was fine. I didn't think it was like a dumpster fire like Liz McGill's was. Um, And and I think, I mean, there are obviously, um, she's now been wrapped up in this like, see, she's a diversity hire narrative. She's an idiot. She gave bad congressional testimony and now people are coming after her academic record and stuff in ways that are really disingenuous. Yeah, I thought Chris Um, Rufo like, did a bunch of like, oh, her dissertation is 
plagiarized type yeah. of thing and i was like oh my god you know i mean i don't i didn't even read it yeah. but i mean it it seems like they're doing the full attack right at this point I no know. dude yeah um and my i guess my just gut instinct is we need to be just so like i'm not on the side of college administrators i think is very clear but um this is not motivated by like they're not there's not this scrutiny because they performed poorly though they did there's this scrutiny because the right is trying to punish the ivy league for not tamping down on criticism of israel and students exercising free speech um and you know the most gross and uh, i think really dangerous part of this is um, the sort of what gets called the revolt of the donors, right? I mean, this is all driven by donor backlash. Liz McGill was under fire. They were trying to have her fired way before. Oh yeah, October way before 7th. October seventh. Yeah, there was a multi-million yeah. dollar campaign to basically get her out. Um, yep. Uh, at the University of Pennsylvania, and that 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 part, I that context, I think, is really important because you know it shows a both the trail of money that is going into this, but also some of the ways in which this is not really about that congressional testimony, right? And I think that anybody with, yep. and I, I think that even the people pushing this would even admit this privately, right? That it is not, oh, for sure. it is not that. It is basically an extended uh, attempt, which we saw in terms of, you know, the presidential campaigns and all, what people are talking about in terms of the culture war. It is this idea that somehow the, elite universities in this country have all been captured right by mm -hmm. um cultural marxists or whatever and that one of the great platforms and one of the big inflection points in this was always about the way in which the academy and these places and under the perception of the people who are pushing this stuff would respond to things like bds for example right like yeah, so yeah. here at cal yep. we had a huge issue about BDS in Israel at the law school way before October 7th last year, right? Like we had it last mm -hmm. year. And, um, and I'm talking about Cal as if I worked there, but no, I just lived near it. But, you know, <laughs> you know, it was, yeah. it was not, that thing was a huge, huge deal. Right. And so, um, yeah. if you think about any of this stuff in that type of extended way, like this is now the, inflection point in which these groups press the pedal down and try and create a change now the question that i have for you is like and something that i've been quite murky on myself like i don't quite get it like what do you think they want like what do, like fine they get these scalps right they get the, yep. the it's a big deal having harvard's president be ousted in this type of way would be a big deal. Having Penn's president be ousted is a big deal. Having MIT's president mm -hmm. be ousted is a big deal. Having all these universities preemptively tweet out in these like just bizarre ways, like Stanford tweeting out like, hey, over here, before you pay attention to us, we agree with everything that's happening, you know? Like, with the, like the, Dude, all the, these the Michi things the are, Michigan one was even All these things are bad. Don't look over here, you know? 100%. <laughs> um, yeah, you already got our president, you know, like we, I don't even know. That. It's almost like they have an interim coach type of deal here, like in the NFL or something like that. They're like, yeah, no, yeah, no, 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 yeah, exactly. um, yeah. uh, Urban Meyer is out. We'll have this new clown in. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, what do you think they're after here? Like, are, are they just after like somebody who's going to like ban, you know, like say like any word of BDS on campus is gone, you know, we're going to shut down these protests. Yeah. Like, cause that would, I think create some huge, huge problems on campus, right? If they actually did that. Yeah. And I think that a lot of these universities understand that. Like, what, what do you think? 
I mean, I think there's like one of the reasons this is like really complicated is I think there are sort of four, three or four strains of um, motive that are intertwined, but not everyone who's involved in this holds all four motives or three motives. I think one of the motives is free speech stuff, right? Like the FIRE organization is obsessed right. with free speech and Harvard gets you know the lowest rating or whatever. I think one of it, uh, one motive is sort of like anti-DEI stuff specifically and anti-diversity stuff. I think that's what's behind the attacks on Claudia Gay, right? Um, I think there's also a sort of, which dovetails with the first two, but a kind of anti-wokeness, right? Of the universe, Like the universities are woke and crazy and progressive and pro-Hamas or whatever. And then finally, I think there's a kind of like, um, neoliberal, like defund the humanities, defund the university wing too. That is like, um, this is all just a pretext to gut humanities departments where, you know, people have these wild ideas about politics or whatever. Um, and I mean, you, the new college in Florida, for example, uh, has been, you know, screwing with their sociology curriculum now won't let sociology classes count toward gen ed because sociology is too woke. Oh, there have yeah. been huge budget cuts at like, you know, places like UNC, West Virginia, um, university. And so, you know, I think there's a bunch of overlapping motives. I think people like Chris Rufo, for example, and I don't think he's like a uh, like an honest broker or anything like that. But I do think he's like basically thinks that we need to return to a kind of like classical humanities curriculum. Right. Um, and I think he thinks if we can't have that, then we'll burn it all down. Uh, but if you like listen to him talk on podcasts or whatever, which I, I sometimes do for perverse fascination he like really will get animated about like humanity stuff and ideas and shit. Like I actually do think he reads and like, just like, hates oh, for the, sure. Like, for sure. Yeah. Humanities. Yeah. yeah. I mean, like so him and James like, Lindsay, like they don't have like in terms of the way in which I look, I think both of them are absolute clowns, but you know, I read, yeah, yeah, yeah. I read James yeah. Lindsay's sort of takedown of CRT or whatever. And yeah, you know, cynical it's not, I, I will just say that he's probably read more critical race theory than the people who are defending it. And yet, but, his sure. conclusions yeah, yeah. are just totally crackpot conclusions, right? Like, yeah, yeah. Um, yep. and it, it's, it was, uh, it, it is, I don't think that, I, James Lindsay's a little different. I think that Chris Rufo is basically just an activist ideologue, right? And he's sort of using yeah. activism tactics and found a lot of money, which is what activists should do, right? Um, <laughs> to sort of promote himself and he attached himself to Ron DeSantis at a time DeSantis, before Ron DeSantis yeah. was just a walking dumpster fire. And in a lot of ways, he misled Ron DeSantis. Now he's into, a rolling dumpster fire. Right, right. He, yeah, yeah. A platform dumpster fire. He, uh, he kind of led Ron DeSantis into the dumpster fire, I think, because <laughs> yeah, he basically sure. made Ron DeSantis care, Go pretend like the see. curriculum of the new College of California was like, or of, of Florida was like anything that anybody should ever care about, you know, which obviously nobody <laughs> does. Anyway, yeah. yeah. No one knew what the new College of Florida was until Ron DeSantis went after it. You know, so, God. He's like, I knew what it was as a person who had very bad, like pretty bad high school grades who needed to go to a small liberal arts college that sure. would that would disregard like the one year in high school where I just did terribly. Just like, we'll take a yeah, chance right. on this guy with high. I was not grades. far away from you. Yeah. Yeah, so, I knew what it was, but. Um, but yeah, uh, so I, I, I think that that's correct, that there's a lot of different actors here going on. But um, <clears throat> I don't know. Let's talk about the free speech part of it first, right? Um, yeah. Like, how, how sincere of a, of, like, of a, like, do you feel like there's a real threat to free speech going on right now? I know that's a broad question, but it's something I think about, obviously, all the time as a journalist, right? Like, uh, 
And it's something I write about quite a bit. I, um, I think that people who listen to this podcast will know I'm a bit of a free speech crank myself. And I just like basically mm-hmm. don't think that any speech should be restricted. And I don't mm-hmm. know, people get mad because I say they shouldn't ban Marjorie Taylor Greene's Twitter account. And they're like, oh, you're pro-COVID. I'm like, well, I don't know. I guess if that means I'm pro-COVID, then I'm pro-COVID. What the fuck does that mean? But um, (laughs) this is not a particularly popular stance. Now, you know, part of that is because I think that um, obviously this type of stuff is going to happen. But uh, but the question I had to you was like, what do you think about this idea? Because I don't know how much I buy it myself that the foundations and the logic and the precursors for what is happening on campus now were laid by you know years of wokeness and cancellation at these places like uh you know i know that you are critic a lot of times in the same way that i am of of some of these sorts of excesses now do you find that do you find that theory to be somewhat compelling because that is the one that is expressed right now at least online by a lot of people right that there is a hypocrisy here that they're trying to sort out and my sense is always like, well, if there's a hypocrisy, then you should allow both sides to, you should allow these students to be expressing these opinions, right? And just get rid of the yep. other side of it. But banning both, it doesn't solve your hypocr- hypocrisy. It just doubles it. Um, but yeah, go ahead. Sorry. No, 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 no. Yeah, I mean, I agree. I think, I mean, the free speech question, whether it's a problem is complicated. I mean, the first thing I would say is that the like vast bulk of speech that is being banned right now is pro-Palestinian speech, right? Um and that's been the case both in academia and outside of academia. Um, you know, free speech is really complicated. I mean, I I have been sort of uh, more uh, drifting toward the side of free speech um, in the same way that it's sort of closer to your position. And then recent events and just seeing the um, way in which protests are being shut down and Jewish Voices for Peace at Columbia is being uh, shuttered, you know, that's really pushed me much further toward a like a more radical free speech position, I think. Um, but, you know, on the one hand, I think a lot of the free speech stuff is really disingenuous. I mean, one of the things I always say is that I say shit people don't like all the time and I'm not you know, getting canceled or fired from my job. And I think a lot of what gets called censorship is self-censorship where, you know, I talk to academics who say like, I'd love to say this, but I can't. I mean, they have fucking tenure. And I'm like, yeah, you can. And they're like, how, how do you know? And they're like, well, I, I don't know. I just, I, I'm sure I would, right? And I think there's this feedback loop where people assume someone is waiting to yell at them or fire them. So they don't say something they think. And then like in their mind, they feel like this like oppressive force has cracked down on them. When in reality, they've like cracked down and policed themselves, you know? But I mean, you can point to any number of examples of like real like free speech violations on campus. Like I don't think I don't think it's fabricated that universities and campuses, elite ones mainly, are places where some ideas are taboo. I think that's that's basically correct. I think the scale and severity severity of the problem and the stakes of the problem are like really blown out of um, blown out of proportion. I mean, the one thing, and I've said this before, but I really believe it. Like I am, you know, I come down. Uh, I'm relatively critical of Israel and come down on the pro Palestine side of stuff for the most part. Um, but you know. I've been a disturbed by some of the things on college campuses where people are really describing, um, you know, Hamas's actions on October 7th, which were horrific as like a, you know, a military procedure or whatever. And some of that shit does does in fact bother me. But what I was going to say is there is a double standard. Like if I were a, you know, pro-Israel Jewish student and I had spent the last few years um, watching every 
microaggression, every um, minor piece of offense being treated as a literal act of violence, um, then I would probably be pretty pissed that, um, you know, some of the more extreme rhetoric that we sometimes see on campuses, um, you know, when I say I feel unsafe, suddenly like my feelings of unsafety don't count, right? And there's been this, yeah, there's been this like 10 year thing where we've been like, anyone who expresses discomfort feeling discomfort or feeling racism is proof of racism, right? Um, and we're seeing, you know, and Jewish students are saying, a certain kind of, you know, pro-Israel Jewish students saying, I feel unsafe and uncomfortable and universities aren't acting, right? Um, and so it's clear to me that there like is a double standard. Um, that's not to say I think Jewish students are unsafe on campus. That's, that's ludicrous. Jewish students are safe at Harvard. Um, and that's also not to say that I think um, just because I think sort of, um, Black experiences or claims about microaggressions at elite universities are taken more seriously. That doesn't also mean that I don't think a lot of students of color have very legitimate problems and concerns on college campuses that aren't addressed by their universities in many ways. But it is to say that, like, rhetorically, there's a double standard, right? That, like, you know, um, it's clear that there are certain kinds of minority groups that, you know, when they say something is making them unsafe, people listen in a way that does not seem to be the case right now. And so either we need to say that, like, any microaggressions count. Um, or we need to say that we're not going to think about safety in this way and that there are speech protections. And if you, it makes you uncomfortable, then the move is reasoned discourse, not, you know, shutting things down. Um, we can't have it both ways. You know, Anthony Fisher in The Daily Beast recently had a very good article about sort of the tensions between free speech and microaggressions. And the issue is that universities have been trying to play it both ways, right? On the one hand, they want to say we're bastions of free speech. But on the other hand, they want to say, like, if you're uncomfortable, speech is violence. We have to shut it down um, and they just need to pick. And I think that's what this this, um, you know, these events have uh, really illuminated is that like the path we're on is untenable. We just need to like create consistent standards. I come down on the free speech side of things, um, but whatever it is, we need to like not have the double standards we currently have because people are noticing and they're not wrong to be right you know, to be I, I, out. I guess my only question would be like who you know like who is the actor in all of this because i do think that the universities you know mm -hmm. at, all the way up to firing a president have been quite uh yep. proactive in terms of the protections that they afford now in terms of the sort of i don't know what uh, to even call this but sort of the council i would say of people who are academics and media members and people who think about these things and create and do set norms in a lot of ways that I think that mm -hmm. um, I do think that it is incumbent upon those people to actually think about the double standard that you talked about. And my sense was always, you know, from the very beginning of this, that people should just stop worrying about this stuff and that the questions about safety yep. and the, the claims of violence through rhetoric were always um, people trying to leverage some sort of power in a sense where, and you know, in, in a way that I felt somewhat sympathetic towards because these are not people who have power, right? Like in a lot of yeah, ways, yeah, of but course. that they're people who are trying to create a rhetorical vehicle in which uh, the things that they find annoying or hurtful are taken much more seriously than perhaps they should be. And that is the only way that they can express any type of influence yep. because you know in the end like they're the one black or latino or asian faculty member in a department and that uh every every yeah. decision that gets made is made by the same white people and that uh this is a way in which uh you can sort of tip the balance of power a little Scales. bit through self-victimization now 
I don't think that it is an irrational way to go about things when you're faced with that predicament, but I do think it's a bit disingenuous, and I think that it probably did create a lot of the anger which uh, that that we've heard. Because you know, I I don't know, like it's not any secret here on this show, but you know, like my wife is Jewish, and I have many, mm-hmm. many, many Jewish friends, and I talk to them about all of this, and a lot of them have been. You know, uh, and these are not people in the media. These are just people I'm friends with, like, you know, yeah. outside of it. You know, like when you talk to sort of there is a anger about that one thing that you pointed out. Right. Which is a yeah. why does nobody talk about October 7th in terms of this? And then the second part of it is like like we have people on campuses right now saying stuff that, you know, uh, they would that if it was any other context to it that they would be brought up on, you know, charges of being every name in the book and that. And now I don't actually think that's true. You know, like, I don't think Mm -hmm. that students do actually get expelled, but I do think there's a lot of self-censure and there's a lot of social censure that you talk about. And that people generally who say that that stuff never existed, I think are delusional in a lot of ways. I mean, the amount of uh, self-censure that every public writer or whatever is under these days is immense, but it was immense before too, right? Like there are just certain things yeah, that you yeah. don't write about. There are certain ways that you don't express your thoughts and that there's a lot of ways in which uh, you really are careful. I actually think that some of the rise of podcasting is because of this. It's because people yeah. feel a little bit more free to express themselves than they do in print where everything can be yep. um, knocked out and whatever. And that. I don't know. I think that whoever sort of in your head, if you imagine whoever regulates that type of self-censure, that type of atmosphere of what should be said and shouldn't be said, um, that there is like in terms of a very pure, logical, rhetorical way, there is like a there is a double standard. Right. And people should be able to point that out if they if if not now they can once you add a question of power, morality, all that sort of stuff, all that stuff becomes much more complicated, should be discussed in that context. But, um, yep. you know, the double standard is still the double standard, right? Like, uh, in that yeah. you know, the task is to justify the double standard. It is not to claim that it doesn't exist, right? Like, that's, that, that, that no. at least is my thought, yeah. thinking about it. Um, you know, you mentioned something which was about and I really do want to talk about it because I think it's something that makes me uncomfortable, which is, the, and not mm-hmm. beyond uncomfortable, like I think I know what's going on, but I wanted your take on it, which is that, all right, look, we have a censure in Congress, right, which is uh, um, basically all the black women in Congress oh, or yeah. Latino women, all the women of color in Congress, right? Uh, they're all being targeted uh, by APAC and having money raised to primary them or to get them out of there. This is like obviously Rashida Tlaib, Ayanna Presley, Cori Bush, uh, Ilhan Omar, AOC, Jamal Bowman, down the line, right? Um, Mm -hmm. And uh, then we have this sort of fight. Now, Liz McGill became the head of it, but really this, the focus of what was happening was always on, was always on Claudine Gay at Harvard, right? And Um, you know, I was wondering what you thought about that, right? Because I don't like, I don't know if, uh, people are not watching this, they're just hearing it, but you are a black academic who has been critical of DEI stuff in the past, right? Um, and, uh, it is something that I, as somebody who also is just like, well, I don't know, maybe we shouldn't talk about identity so much. I don't know. Like, you know, like racism is racism and you got to point it out when it is, even if it, you know, 
even if you don't want to use the same language that everyone else does. This feels quite intentional, in my opinion. I was yeah. wondering what you felt. I could not agree more. I think, uh, you know, there are two pieces of it. You flagged them both. One is gender, one is race. Uh, with the gender piece, right, all three of the university presidents were women. Um, you know, part of sexism and misogyny is the social expectation that women are like caretakers, you know, and that they're soft and they're kind and they're sweet and motherly in a certain way. Um, this is something, you know, female academics really have to struggle with where, you know, when a male academic is, you know, um, hard and strict, they're just, they're tough. They're, you know, they're just, they're rigorous. And when a female academic or professor is strict about some policy, like the students think they're, you know, a total jerk and, you know, whatever. Uh, and so I think part of my reaction to this is that if these were three men, we would be saying, yeah, they, they shit the bed in this press conference, right? But I don't think, I have a hard time imagining the um, reception would have been the same. I think the story would have been about they did a really bad job. But I think there would be a more charitable reception where people have been like, well, they were trying to just be hard nosed about free speech and they like didn't do enough to flag that. Yes, the rhetoric is a real concern, but like we defend free speech here. Right. I think that would be how we talked about it. But I think part of the really negative reception of these three women was precisely because they're women and they weren't doing the nice feel good caretaking thing where they were saying, of course, you know, we are concerned about safety and this and blah, blah, blah. But we also have to like worry about these, you know, free speech stuff, et cetera. Um, so I think gender played a huge role. Uh, race is absolutely playing a role with Claudia Gay. I mean, again, my reading, and I watched the testimony a bunch of times, was that she was by far the most uh, reasonable and the least... Um, who fumbled the ball the, the the least, right? And I think it's really telling that the focus has been disproportionately on the person whose testimony was uh, not the worst and probably the best out of the three. <laughs> yeah, I would, I you agree. know, <laughs> like it's really like I mean that tells you the whole game, right? And yeah, it's partly it's like black quarterbacks, right? At, Where like uh, yeah, exactly. Yeah, yeah, <laughs> it's yeah, just exactly. like oh, he uh, threw for three hundred fifty yards, but he had one pick, you know. <laughs> and then meanwhile, exactly. meanwhile, there's two white yeah, quarterbacks exactly. who <laughs> yeah. threw for like uh, eighty six. Lamar's yards gonna go no in the playoffs, I want to go yeah, on the record exactly. saying that, but, but nonetheless, yeah, yeah, yeah like every time Lamar Jackson comes up, it's like, I don't know, he could have been better. I'm just like, they're they've lost three games, like, what do you want out of this guy, you know? Like, and then, um, dude, I tweeted this, like, I don't know, a couple weeks ago, but I was like, literally, like, <laughs> listening to people talk about quarterbacks turns me into fucking Ibram X. Kendi, like, I just oh, yeah, I lose my mind for me. Like, it's yeah, it's oh, uh, it's NBA coaches basically, where like any like, oh, sure, yeah, any <laughs> NBA coach who went to like Wesleyan is seen as this great, they're like, watch this space, you know. And now I have no idea whether <laughs> this person is a good coach or not, but I know enough yeah. about, and I've worked in sports media long enough to know that like any coach or GM who reminds the general. Uh, NBA media themselves is going to get an amazing treatment and any former yeah. player is just going to be seen as this hulking jack idiot you know with low IQ <laughs> yeah, who doesn't really sure. understand basketball and just like this is so fucking racist that I just I can't even Dude. handle hearing about it and it doesn't even matter uh, what the performance is you know like it doesn't matter what <laughs> no, the performance is like you can have the best team in the league and they'll just They'll just say, oh, yeah, well, you know, there's a white assistant. Like, you know, with Doc Rivers, it was always like, oh, well, Tom Thibodeau is a real genius there. And it's like, oh, yeah, my yeah, God. Yeah. Like, would you guys do this to the white coach? Because I promise you fucking wouldn't, you know? Um, Dude, it's nuts. It, it really is. I mean, I do think sports is one of the places where 
I get, I'm, you know, like I said, I'm pretty critical of a lot of, like, the identity obsession. But, right. like, sports is one of the places where you can, like, there's, like, this, there's real, like, re- institutionalized racism in sports that I think is, like, really blindingly obvious and doesn't take, like, you know, much digging around. Um, but, like, for the, like, Harvard thing, yeah, I mean, I totally agree. I think it's racism. I think there's one of the things that really bothers me is, like, people ca- keep calling her a diversity hire. Um, and they keep, you know, and one of the things that, like, bothers me about it is, like, it's one, obviously correct. Um, but like, that's not the same as saying she's like unqualified. Like I, I, you know, and when people try to tell me I'm not, I'm like, I mean, just like, that's insane. Like I was obviously a diversity hire at my job. Um, but I'm really good at my job and I was really qualified and I published in grad school and like, you know, like, um, and those two things can simultaneously be true that like, you know, what someone, what tips the scales for somebody is that they're a diversity hire. And at the same time, they're like absolutely qualified, et cetera. And I find the like diversity hire rhetoric around her really frustrating and disingenuous. Um, you know, people are pointing to, well, she only had 11 peer reviewed, you know, academic articles. Well, she's also been an admin forever. They're like, their, their job is not publishing anything. Right, she's not right, an academic, right. you know? Um, and so, I mean, I think the way to understand the reception to her is that, there's a pre she's just fitting into a pre-existing narrative that these folks had about the evils of diversity hiring and that, you know, these people are unqualified and blah, blah, blah. And, you know, she's just becoming a scapegoat um, for their sort of preconceived, you know, notions about DEI and diversity hiring and so on. Um, I, I don't I've looked at the pair uh, the plagiarism accusation. Um, I'm not an expert on plagiarism. Um, and I think I would have quoted the things um she paraphrased uh and at the same time i think that it's immensely small potatoes uh and really sort of disingenuous to dredge that up um but yeah i mean the attacks on her are nuts to me and like i said i think um the fact that she performed the best out of the three and yet seems to be getting like the lion's share of the the assault uh, shows you that there's not just this like gender piece, but there's like a real race thing going. Yeah, on. Yeah, I sure. agree. Although I, you know, I think there are, the other argument would be that it's Harvard and people feel more emotional about Harvard. Yeah. But I think that the idea also is true. like basically, I don't know. Look, I don't. I I think that the office of university president is always held by cold calculating people who know how to talk to money yep. and who are beloved by money. Right? Otherwise, they wouldn't have that yeah. job. And that I don't see much like I find that the idea behind this that, you know, every black woman who is in an administrative <laughs> position is actually a secret radical. I'm just like, no, <laughs> you know? yeah, yeah, 100%. <laughs> but I, sure. like, they don't yeah, get yeah. that job by being a secret radical. They get that job by being, you know, that the donors and the board and everybody likes them right now. <laughs> and I, I, I do feel, I don't feel much sympathy for her because I, you know, I hate Harvard, but like, I also have this, yeah. um, I feel sympathy in the sense that I don't think she could, I think she's in this impossible position, right. Where like the left totally. is basically just me like, this is like a sellout, right. That, um, has, uh, like not in terms of a racial sense, but just in terms of like, uh, you know, like she's going to keep yeah. her to keep her job. She's going to basically throw all these pro-Palestine kids under the bus. Right. Which is mm-hmm. I guarantee what she's going to do if she wants to keep her job. For right? sure. And yeah. <laughs> on the right, yep. she can't win because it's racist. Right. Like because they're basically <laughs> just saying like, oh, there's a DEI hire and everything like that. And she has basically come on. I, if I were her, I would just, I sh- I'm sure she's rich at this point, you know? Yeah, yeah. I don't know. I would just like resign and move somewhere and just be like, fuck all of you. Don't ever call me 
Dude, she's, you're 100% right. I mean, she's like, A, I think, and this is like something I always try to point out, like the expectation that minorities are like moral magic and that just because they're brown, they must be like these like progressive, like not sort of like neoliberal functionaries. Is itself racist? Like the expectation that people expected the black lady who helms this university that sits on $50 billion of an endowment is like some like Marxist is in it. Like it's racism. You're just assuming that because of her skin color. Yeah. Like it's very obvious what her job is, you know, um, but she's totally in a no win, right? Like she can't appease the people she needs to appease without pissing off progressives. She can't appease the people that she needs to appease either because like so many of them are like racist assholes and she's yeah she's in a total pickle uh i'm definitely not in the business of defending university presidents either but like it's just um it's just like kind of an ugly situation where like saying i feel bad isn't the right word but it's yeah there's just i i do think it's going to be horrible for higher education because i, I think it's going to only further entrench donor activism i think it's only going to further entrench the stranglehold that billionaires have on what gets taught and how um and you know you asked earlier if i think all this stuff is a backlash to wokeness and i think the correct answer to that is like no but i think there's a way in which um like the right has attacked universities for literally 75 years going back to william f buckley wrote god and man at yale right um and so and there's been a push to defund humanities departments, defund public universities that also goes back decades for, you know, austerity, economic bullshit reasons. Um, and the transformation of universities into vocational school where we just pipeline people into sort of, you know, service professional jobs. Um, and and yet, so I, I, I don't think, I think the motives were pre-existing. I think what has happened is that some of the like, more identitarian, quote-unquote, woke progressive politics have provided a really easy scapegoat for the longer-standing mission of defunding universities, attacking diversity, um, you know, uh, attacking universities in general because they're too progressive or whatever. So I think it's uh, been fuel for the fire that just provides a convenient excuse to for conservatives to do what they've always wanted to do for 75 years. Yeah, so. yeah. It, that was always my thinking about it, similar in that sense, when I was reading about you know when i was writing about crt in Mm -hmm. schools which was like i don't think that schools are teaching critical race theory but i do think that there was some things that were brought in by outside consultants but also placed into curriculums that were not really defensible in a lot of ways like the timo oaken stuff right which is just always like the these are the characteristics of white supremacy and would have stuff like (laughs) punctuality and stuff like that like the idea that that stuff didn't exist in any school districts was not true like it existed in a lot of now the extent to which it was influential is very much up for debate but they certainly you know when you look at the public uh communications of a school district like berkeley like you see a lot of that stuff in there and the question is not whether or not that stuff is right or wrong but the question is whether or not people are going to be willing to defend it when it comes when their feet are held to the fire and over and over again, they were not willing to defend that stuff. They were only willing to minimize it, right? And so yeah, yeah. Mesons was like, look, either defend it or don't, but don't like have it exist and then pretend it's not there and then minimize yep. it because at some point you're going to get it blown up into this whole thing because people are going to actually find out that, yeah, Timo Oaken stuff was passed around a lot of school districts, right? Um, some of these yeah. books do have images that like maybe a 10-year-old like uh, would not like that a lot of parents would be uncomfortable with a 10 year old finding in a public library. It's just like, 
either defend it or don't, but don't pretend that it doesn't exist. Uh, and yeah. I think that that sort of lacks attitude about, oh, we'll just minimize, 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 right? I think that that sort of yeah. led to a difficulty to defend things when it became much more real. And we're just in a place right now where all these ideas have become extremely real, right? Like, I think that Charles Murray going around campuses and trolling kids into having responses into shutting him down like that like that was always felt kind of like abstract and like a little game that AEI mm -hmm. was playing with people to try and yeah, you yeah. Know, drum up attention to On the, the yeah. war that was going on but now we're actually in a in the culture war that that ha is going to have real consequences for higher education going down the line and all these sort of nascent movements that were like kind of like trading in memes and stupid shit like that have a lot of power behind them and i agree it's pretty scary i mean the idea that the humanities departments which are already being defunded are going to just continue to be defunded in these public institutions that what's going to be left is like a small number of private institutions it's not good for anybody you know like that's bad you know that's no. that's bad for higher education it's bad for everything no my buddy uh leaf weatherby who's uh at MIU, and he's also like a sort of cultural critic guy, points out, he had a piece in the Times where he said, um, you know, what we're seeing is educational gerrymandering, right? We're sp splitting into like red and blue states with like different curriculums for universities, which is really bad. And, I, you know, it's just, um, I mean, the thing I find frustrating is that elite universities, a few humanities professors at elite universities are saying insane shit. And Republicans and conservatives are pointing at them and saying, look at this lunatic at Cornell or look at this lunatic in Columbia. Let's gut West Virginia University. Yeah, you know, yeah, so like yeah. and West Virginia University is not like a hotbed of wokeness. They're just like, <laughs> yeah, it's like it's insane. So like they're just and the thing that I find really frustrating is that um, it feels to me that it's uh, professors at elite humanities departments. And it's not a lot of them. Like, I don't want to pretend like it's full of like crazy pro Hamas radicals or whatever, but like the really crazy shit is all coming out of the Ivy league. And that stuff is providing a really convenient scapegoat for red state Republican senators who then want to portray what is happening on in a few humanities departments at a few uber wealthy universities as just the norm on higher education. And it's not the people at the elite universities that pay, right? Their, their humanities departments are being defunded, right? So they're just getting to play pseudo radical barn burner, give nice little speeches that, you know, rouse their students and they get a call, you know, uh, October 7th, the counter offensive and it, you know, it makes people happy. Happy, and they feel, you know, oh, yeah, that talking about that one certified. At Cornell specifically. Yeah, I saw that. Yeah. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And then they turn around, right? And uh, it's not, they're not bearing the brunt of the uh, defunding. They're not bearing the brunt of the attacks because there are private universities that are insulated and it's public universities that are getting screwed. So I don't know. If I were teaching at a public university humanities department that's being defunded because of idiots at the Ivy League, I'd be pretty mad. Yeah, I would say, you know, it's, it's, it's it's a question of whether or not that causation has anything to do with actually giving people the like if they would probably defund these places anyway, even if the oh, person for sure. did it. But giving them a just giving, giving any right type of justification of yeah. when there's not much production around the other side of it um, does seem I don't know. It's like. I, I, I guess I, I feel a little bit conflicted about it because I feel like that professor should be able to say what they 
want, oh, but at sure, the 100%. same time, um, and I don't really believe in this, like, you know, like strategic idea because I just think that the right and, you know, parts of the left or whatever, they're just going to do what they're going to do. Right. But, um, yeah. but I don't think that it basically makes anybody look good overall when, um, when there is a radicalism that is events that is clearly theatrical at its nature and that mm-hmm. every single person who sees it can spot it, you know, like that's the part where I'm yeah, just yeah, like, yeah. all right, what are you doing? Like, you know, like you, ha- yeah, I mean, to me, I think you're right. They're going to do what they want to do. I, I totally agree with that. And I think they would do it anyway. Like right. I a hundred percent agree with that. But what I think this is done by providing these convenient sound bites that get splashed all over both conservative and liberal media, it just further erodes public trust and faith and confidence in universities and the humanities in particular. And so when conservatives do turn around and do what they were going to do anyway, there's less public backlash because the public's like, well, fuck those people. Who right. Cares, that right? seems like what's happening now. Right. It is basically yeah, yeah. Uh, the right is creating a campaign to say, we're going to do all this shit and fuck those people. Right. Like and mm-hmm. that in a lot of ways, I think it's going to be seen as somewhat effective because I think it's one thing to do libs of TikTok and show that like, oh, all these professors are so, and then people look around and like, I don't know, my teacher is pretty normal. You know, the teacher of my kid is totally They're all MSNBC liberals. I don't see it. But then when it is trained on these elite institutions and people already hate those elite institutions for the fact that they're elite, then I think that it probably will be a bit more effective. And now that they have completely, uh, now that the media is so invested in this question um in a lot of ways i think because i think that uh a lot of journalists and opinion writers and pundits are actually quite i think they're quite overwhelmed by what to actually say about this war you know and i don't think it's all Mm -hmm. self-censorship i think it's literally like people don't know enough about what's happening it's hard yeah and they feel unworthy to comment on it all the time that my thing is you know like i don't I think that you should learn about it and you should write about it because that's your job. But I also understand why I, I haven't written a lot about it because, you know, a lot of it is just like, well, I don't know if it's my place to say this. But also I just, yeah, you know, sure. like there are people who know much more about it than me who will write about it. Now, it turned out that a lot of them don't <laughs> write about it, which is its own thing. But I don't know. Totally. I just find that part to be uh, somewhat understandable. The last thing I wanted to ask you about was... Um, True. You know, like I saw something that you had tweeted that I found kind of interesting in which you were, um, you know, I think the listeners of the show know that I'm, I've been critical about DEI stuff in the past, and I know you have as well, but that you have found some utility to it in your professional life, right? That you're not like, you don't think it yeah. should all be like gutted and, and, and thrown away. Like, you know, like, I don't know, there's a type of class reductionist who would argue that, right? But that you haven't found that. Yeah, Can you yeah. explain a little bit about that to me? Yeah, I mean, look, I'm no champion of DEI. I'm uh, no champion of the ballooning of administration and higher ed. I mean, when I talk about higher ed admin, I sound like a libertarian, which which I'm very much not. But just like we have, I mean, Yale has something crazy, like one admin for every student. Um, And tons of that is is partly driven by, you know, DEI admin. And I think, uh, but, you know, setting that aside, I, there are ways in which DEI in the last couple of years has brought attention to, I think, real problems in academia, um, you know, structural and problems, particularly for faculty of color. Um, I mean, one thing I often point to is, you know, 
faculty of color um, often say, and I wasn't sure if it was true before I, I got a job, you know, they would say it's, it's a lot more work being a faculty of color. And I never really understood what that meant. Um, but if you are one of only a few brown professors on a campus, particularly a small campus, um, you know, students of color demand your time constantly. They want mentoring. They want advice from someone who looks like them. If they have um, a problem related to race on campus, that you're the person they come to. And it's not even if just they share your identity group. Like I have trans students that come to me, I, I, you know, students from Appalachia that, you know, feel like they're outsiders and they're looking for someone who they maybe feel like is a bit of an outsider as right. well. And it's, um, I don't want to say a burden because I, I really, I love teaching and I, I genuinely do care about my students. And I think um, as much as I complain about wokeness and DEI, I think uh, folks would be surprised about the amount of time I spend thinking about equity and pedagogy and, and making our classrooms more inclusive and stuff. And, uh, you know, so I care about the mentoring side of things, but it can be really overwhelming. And I think one of the things, for example, DEI offices have brought attention to is the way in which faculty of color have these, what sometimes people call shadow labor or shadow demands on their time, right? Where, you know, I write way more letters of recommendation than the average faculty member does. And that's mostly because I'm writing a ton of letters of rec for students of color who want a letter of rec from someone who looks like them. Um, and so, you know, uh, I do think DEI has drawn attention, particularly when it comes to promotion and hiring, right? That like, Maybe if somebody, um, you know, maybe if they're the expectation is that they should have 10 article peer reviewed articles at tenure and they have nine, um, you know, shining some light on faculty of color often do have these extra demands, right. um, some of which are service demands, too. Right. So um, service in academia basically refers to serving on committees for shit. Right. Um, and faculty of color, for various reasons, often have more committee work. Um, one of the reasons is we're constantly thrown on, you know, committees related to diversity. And I have. Uh, problems with that. Um, but I also understand why it is right. Um, I mean, you know, I frequently get thrown on or asked to be on, sometimes I turn it down various diversity initiatives at, at Bates. Um, and if I say, why don't you ask a white person to do this? Sometimes the answer is, well, it just wouldn't feel right to have a white person helming this particular issue. And it's kind of a double bind. Like I, I get that, that logic. Um, but it does mean faculty of color do often have this extra work that is put upon them, ironically, in the service of diversity, right? Um, so I think DEI has drawn attention to that. I think um, on the whole, there's been a lot of ways that DEI have not made my life easier on campus um, and have just increased expectations in certain directions. Um, and I think that's true everywhere. Bates actually, I think, is way more thoughtful than most places about some of these issues. Um, but yeah, I, I wouldn't want to throw it out because I think it's drawn attention to some aspects of being a professor or student of color that, that are, are real, that are not like cooked up in some progressive woke laboratory. Um, but I think the question is like, how do we keep the kernel of reasonable while also like, you know, taking apart the outer shell of insanity that, that, you know, pervades in some of these spaces. Right. I, you know, I, I think about this quite a bit or I thought about it quite a bit. And I think I talked about the show at some point, but I will say that as somebody who, and from a, just like a sort of debate brain perspective, thinks like, oh, well, this stuff is not particularly helpful and it causes, mm -hmm. it leads to a type of identity obsession amongst young people. And um, mm -hmm. it also leads them to think about themselves in terms of, in ways that I don't think are particularly helpful or useful for them. But then it's always cut by the fact that I've met and talked to a lot of, you know, just doing speaking stuff or whatever, 
as a non-white person, I'm generally invited in by some DEI initiative. And, um, <laughs> and so you meet the administrators who do this stuff and they like, I've never met one that I thought was like a bad person or was like, a, oh, for sure. or was yeah, yeah. not sincere in their idea that it was good to have different types of voices, including me come in, mm-hmm. nor have I met one who felt that they needed to censor me because I was like a bit of a thorny person. Like I'm not going to come not in. Towing and, the line. Yeah. I'm not going to come in and say like, Oh, this is great. And we should, you know, like I wrote a lot yeah. of critical articles about affirmative action, for example. Right. Like now that's like, sort yeah, of verboten, but like, it's not like I don't get any invites to these places because of that. In fact, it seems like they're somewhat willing to tolerate, not tolerate, but to, to have me come in and speak mm-hmm. because because of those perspectives, right? And so I think that some of the totally caricaturizing of these places is ridiculous. Like I, I or at least it's not yeah, matched yeah. my actual lived experiences with it. But um, and I do think that the questions that you're asking are really real because I feel them in media, right? And it's much less of a sort of hierarchical mm-hmm. place here than it is in in the academy and. Um, there should probably be some sort of institutional force within these administrations to make sure the same bullshit doesn't keep happening um, to students and to faculty. And yet it just feels like the way in which, like in any type of administrative bureaucratic thing, um, you know, like once something is installed, the point of that thing is to expand its power, right? Like, uh, Yeah, yeah, exactly sort of legitimate its existence right right and to increase its funding and to hire more people and to grow and that seems to be some of the issue right now that there is like this i don't even want to say it's overreach it just seems like it's literally just an administrative issue where it's uh where it just grows and grows and grows because every university department their goal is to grow and grow and grow right and this is not going to be excluded from that type of thing no, I totally agree, man. You know, and I, I do think um, there are, you know, just as you were saying about re- media, there are real challenges. I mean, I've had, um, I grew up in a rural place, so like I'm, I'm fine in Maine and I'm good in Lewiston, but I'll have, um, you know, faculty of color friends that are like, you know, that they don't want to live in Lewiston, which is the sort of old mill town where Bates is, um, because they have to drive like 90 minutes to find somebody who can cut black hair, right? You know, and they're like, this seems like a small thing, but like I, you know, but the reason I bring this up is there's a huge push if you're at a liberal arts college to live locally, right? And like an example of a thing that DEI has done well at the institution I work at is to say like, look, you know, if you want to be more diverse, um, you need to realize that people might want to live in Portland, Maine, rather than in Lewiston, Maine, because it's like more s- closer to the, some of the stuff they care about, right? And yeah. not every professor is going to live 10 minutes down the road anymore. And I think there have been conversations like that, that um, DEI offices can initiate that like trouble some of the like long sedimented expectations about like what life at a small college is supposed to look like that are really valuable and important. And I think they matter. Um, and yet, you know, there are other ways it gets out of hand, but I think you're right. Like I absolutely, I mean, this is the thing I say all the time. I'm, I'm very rarely cynical about individual people. You know, I think um, most administrators are just trying to do their job. Uh, they really care about diversity in various ways. And even when I disagree on stuff, it, it's like uh, they're coming from a place of good faith. And so one thing I guess I always react really negatively to is like Republicans are like, this is all a power grab. Like these people are power hungry and they just, you know, they're using DEI as like a cudgel, blah, blah, blah. And I I think that's totally wrong. I think 
they're really committed to the project. And even when I find parts of it silly, I, I'm, um, I've never been tempted to be like cynical about the motivations at the level of individuals. I think at the level of the university, it exists to slap a smiling face on what is a predatory neoliberal institution that is uh, a debt machine that exists to turn out finance bros. But like, so like institutionally, I think DEI is like, you know, has a particular kind of role that is, is uh, you know, um, smoke screen for a lot of bad stuff. Um, but like at the level of people, I mean, that's, it's an insane accusation that these are, you know, power hungry. Right. Leadership. These are people who are, are got a job and they want to make the college more inclusive and diverse, which a, 100%, lot of should, yeah. a lot of these schools really should take kind of seriously. Yeah. The emotional, the, I don't know what to call it. Shadow labor thing. I thought about it. Uh, mm-hmm. Like somebody had tweeted about it like a few months ago. I thought about my own college experience and, and, retrospect I think I did seek out the few minority scholars on campus just because mm-hmm. um you know it was a weird experience for me being in Maine and it was you know yeah, I of course like would go to their office hours and talk to them about rap music or something like that and you know these are like 65 year old people <laughs> like have you heard yeah. have you heard jazz <laughs> <laughs> I'm, like, I'm not interested in that, you know, and it was obviously, um, like, I don't know, they didn't, I don't, I wasn't, I'll just put it this way, I wasn't going to, like, the neocon government professors that we had at Bowdoin at that point to talk to them about, yeah, like, exactly. Oh, no, dude, they're still there, don't worry. No, no, they're yeah, definitely they're still there, I've seen them, you know, like, yeah. they were, you know, yeah. they had a, <laughs> um, uh, I remember, like, there were these two neocons there, and, like, uh, yeah, they were very popular, and you know, I think that look good. The truth about Bowdoin back then was that there was not a lot of like lively political conversation going on around amongst the students. Mostly, just talk about the Red Sox and you know, sh- yeah, yeah. shooting our guns or whatever. But the small amount that did was definitely informed by neocons. The neocons. <laughs> yeah, and I, I don't know. That's maybe great. one of the professors of Francis Fukuyama had gone to him and been like, "Hey, you know, like what's the you know what's the deal with being Asian?" <laughs> yeah, yeah, like, for sure. He would have been like, I God. do so much emotional labor. There's this 19 year old from North Carolina who just keeps coming to my office hours talking about random bullshit because I think he's like yeah, lonely exactly. and is <laughs> like weirded out about totally. being in Maine. Oh, God. Anyway. No, I love that kind of stuff. Uh, but yeah, no, I mean, it's, it is, that's like one of the parts of being a, like a faculty member of color that can be really rewarding. I mean, you know, even just like connecting with students from different backgrounds, like this yeah. kid from Appalachia is one of, one of my students, he rocks and he's just fascinating and brilliant, you know, started out of a community college and then um, transferred and, uh, but that kind of stuff's really valuable and I, I really care about it. Um, and so, but yeah, there are, you know, other ways being a faculty member on campus is, you know, nuts and, and so on. Yeah, yeah. Yeah. No, that I, I, I imagine you didn't annoy your professors. I'm sure they liked it. No, I, well, I annoyed some of them, but I don't, it wasn't because of the office hours thing. I think I was just like, yeah. I don't know. I, you know, I was, that was a troubled youth. Um, and <laughs> I should not have gone to college. I think when I did, yeah, and yeah. I definitely shouldn't have gone to like a small liberal arts college in Maine yeah. but it, I always joke with my students that uh it sounds like our college experiences were similar I always joke with my students that uh you know when they're worried about their career prospects I always tell them I promise you there is no one on this planet that is more surprised that I'm a college professor than my college professor so you will be fine <laughs> <laughs> um all right man. well thank you for coming on um absolutely dude and uh we'll have you back on soon this was very lively and entertaining oh this is super really fun yeah it. I'm a big and, fan of yours yeah, so this is great I'm, I'm very glad to connect to you. Um, all right. Talk to you soon.